Is it rolling, Bob? Talking Dylan. He's your host, Lucas Hare. He's your host, Kerry Shale. But he's our special guest, writer and recording artist, Larry Razzo Sloman. I didn't mean to treat you so bad. You shouldn't take it so personal. I didn't mean to make you so sad. You just happened to be there, that's all. When I saw you say goodbye to your friend and smile, I thought that it was well understood that you'd be coming back in a little while. I didn't know that you were saying goodbye for good. But sooner or later, one of us must know. You just did what you're supposed to do. Sooner or later, one of us must know that I really did try to get close to you. Wow. Those are very ratty lyrics, actually. <laughs> scary <laughs> lyrics. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's one of my favorite Dylan songs from definitely my favorite Dylan album, Blonde yeah. on Blonde. Mm. And uh, I, I once uh, told Bob that, and I was uh, so excited. I said to him, you know, I'd rather, uh, I would rather hear that song than get a blowjob. And, and Bob said, uh, well, I'd rather sing that song than get a blowjob. <laughs> and then he said uh, later, he said, can you take that out of the interview? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and am yeah. I right in thinking that in the Blonde on Blonde recordings, that was one of the early ones, wasn't it, that he did with the Hawks or members of the Hawks before he moved on to Nashville? Is that right? I think so, yeah. yeah. I think Rick um, Danko's on that on that recording, isn't he? And maybe Richard Manuel. I should yeah. uh, I should have mentioned uh, right off the top that we've also got uh, your album producer and uh, musician uh, Vincent Cascione here. So feel free to to pipe uh, in whenever you like, uh, Vin. And thanks for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So uh, where to start? I'm just. Should we start with? Uh, I know you've uh, answered these things a million times, Rasso, but uh, you know your your background about the first time you heard Bob. Well, the first time I heard Bob, um, I was, uh, let's see, so it was like uh, around 66, I was, uh, maybe 65, I was living in Bayside, I was living a very conventional middle class life, uh, I was actually working for an accountant on the weekends uh, he had like little pizza places as his accounts and I would do the books for him, you know, uh, on track to be a you know, nice Jewish lawyer or something like that, mm. to please my parents. <laughs> and um, But there was always a rebellious streak in me. And, uh, you know, at that time, there was a division. If you were either a Beatle fan or you were a Rolling Stone fan. Mm. And uh, I was decidedly a Rolling Stone fan. In fact, I had uh, uh, my official Rolling Stone fan club little card, uh, I dug the fact that they uh, were arrested for you know, taking a piss on a courtroom or something like that. So um, so I was walking down uh, Bell Boulevard in Bayside past my favorite record store, and uh, every week they would uh, list uh, on the uh, outside uh, top 10 singles. And, uh, and I looked at the singles, and I, like number six or something was... Like a Rolling Stone, B. Dylan. And 
I didn't come from like a red diaper baby family, so I didn't know the early Dylan protests. Uh, I didn't know Peter, Paul, and Mary. I didn't know any of that mm. folk scene. Mm. Uh, so, um, so I walked, I said, wait a minute. Who's this B. Dylan is ripping off the Rolling Stones? <laughs> and, and I went into the record store and I bought the single. And I went home and it, it just transfixed me. And that night, I made my father drive me, because I was you know, too young to drive, uh, drive me to the uh, Alexander's department store in Flushing, Queens, and I bought a copy of the album, Highway 61 Revisited. Uh, and it was um, on sale for $1.88 mono. And uh, I came home and I put that album on and I listened to one by one, I listened to those songs. Uh, you know, Desolation, I mean, it was just mind boggling. And that, more than anything else, that album set me on the path that, you know, I've pursued for the rest of my life. So you said you were working, but then you said you were you were not old enough to drive. So were you like fifteen? Well, no, no, I was wor- I was working like you know, uh, there was an accountant in the same building that my parents lived, and he just asked me to do a uh, you know like uh, I, I did it from home. I just reconciled the books, so it was like you know after school work. Okay, but that's still kind of a sounds like a grown up job being an accountant. But you were always no, it was. Fa- it was very simple, very rudimentary. Okay. Just, you know, you make, you know, it's like balancing a checkbook. And I didn't then, have to have es- esoteric math. <laughs> and then the following year, you saw, you saw Dylan in, um, in White Plains in February. Yes. 66. Yes. Can you talk a bit about yes. that? Yeah, that was, uh, um, I went with a friend of mine. Um, again, I was too young to drive. So my parents uh, actually drove us and then uh, went to see a movie or something. And uh, I remember uh, we were sitting way at the back of the auditorium, um, and it was just uh, uh, incredibly exciting. I mean, first, of course, the first half he came out, he was wearing this beautiful, like, olive checkered suit, Mm. Uh, and he did these uh, amazing, amazing um, uh, acoustic numbers, some of which would actually, you know, beyond uh, Blonde on Blonde. Mm-hmm. And, then, uh, and then there was an intermission, and then he came back with the band mm. and uh, just rocked the place out. Uh, and, you know, I, it, you know, I mean, we stayed in our seats. It wasn't like, you know, Beatlemania. We didn't, like, run up the aisle to get to the front. There was nothing like that then. Um, like at a Nick Cave concert today where you know, the fans <laughs> get on stage with Nick. But uh, so then uh, my father came to pick us up and um, uh, on the way home, he said, uh, yeah, I was looking for you guys. I didn't know where you was. So I walked all the way up to the front and I said, you what? <laughs> he says, yeah, I walked all the way to the front. I said, you're kidding. What, what, what did he look like? I mean, what kind of boots was he wearing? I mean, you know, like I was asking all these questions. And my father said, I don't know. He, you know, he just like, looked like a normal guy. He was like a little guy. Uh, you know, he looked like a shipping clerk. 
because <laughs> my father was in the garment center. <laughs> and, and, and was this pre? This was pre booing. I mean, this was three months before um, it really kicked off in in Europe when he was booed every night. Now there is a recording of the White Plains gig on the on that '66 box set they released a few years ago, but right. it's an audience recording and it's difficult to hear. But I mean, was was there any booing, or were people just no. really really into it? No, there was no booing. I mean, you know, a lot of that booing, I, I, you know, I guess it depended on the venue. But a lot of that, I mean, uh, there are people who claim there was no booing at, at Newport. Yeah. Except, you know, uh, except Pete Seeger trying to pull the plug. Yeah. <laughs> and Alfred Grossman beating the shit out of him. But, I mean, no, there was, uh, as far as I was concerned in that audience, I mean, it was, uh, you know, kind of universally well-received. Yeah. Because it must have been quite confusing to, for even for the acoustic stuff to hear something like Visions of Johanna before it had been released. You must have heard it and thought, "Wow, this is this is a, a step and a half away from from what I thought was we were going to get." Well, um, no, because I, you know, I had a see. I didn't know the early stuff that well at that point. Okay. I mean, I went back and got all the albums, you know, uh, after that. But you know, all I knew was the. Uh, the Highway 61 aesthetic. Mm. And so so these songs were not that removed at all from that. You know, I didn't I didn't know the uh the protest songs or the early folk songs. So you you um moving on from that you you went to uh university I know and you uh uh hung out with Abby Hoffman and you 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 sort of had a double life for a while is that uh right as far as being a good Jewish boy on one hand and a Absolutely. Bohemian I mean no, crazy. well I mean and that was directly tied to Dylan. I mean, uh, you know, once I heard lyrics that, uh, you know, at midnight all the agents in the superhuman crew come down and round up everyone who knows more than they do, you know, that was that demystified the whole kind of, uh, you know, uh, system. And, uh, and also don't forget that, you know, the war was beginning to be a big issue. Mm. So, um, and, but I, 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 frankly... Uh, you know, I, I looked at, uh, I think it was the line of notes on, on uh, uh, Highway 61, and I saw, uh, uh, you know, Dylan was talking about, like, the Paul Sargent uh, uh, clothing store in the village where he got his clothing. And, I, 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 you, know, I th- I th- you know, I thought he was so cool looking on the cover of Highway 61. I mean, this was like a style icon. This, mm-hmm. Besides being a, an amazing lyricist and a great, great singer, this was a guy you wanted to look like. So uh, I started, you know, going in with friends and we would go to Paul Sargent's and we would go to all the places that were mentioned. And uh, one thing led to another. And then um, I saw the Fugs play. The Fugs were uh, at a residency at the Players Theater on McDougal Street in the West Village. Mm-hmm. And the Fugs were the second uh, uh you know, bullet in the in the heart of conventional life for me, because um, the Fugs were these you know beatnik poets who were uh, you know using the rock and roll medium to subvert the minds of young people, and that's what they did to me. I mean, you know, I, I eventually became close friends with Tuli Kufferberg mm-hmm. and uh, Ed, and um, you know, they're they're they're. They were, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll and protest. Uh, you know, their early songs were, uh, you know, very sexual. Um, they they sang songs about, you know, getting high, and they sang songs, you know, great protest songs like "Kill for Peace," and uh, it was remarkable to see that, you know, kind of like 
you know, they were very theatrical. I mean, when they did Kill for Peace, Thule would dress up in an army fatigue and a helmet and had a, a plastic water uh, a toy gun, a toy machine gun. And, um, you know, the, and there was uh, compelling songs that really shook you up. And uh, so this, this, that was step two in my, uh, mm. uh, you know, uh, where I ultimately wound up. So uh, that's where I started. Now, the reason I, I got to Rolling Stone is because there was a huge difference between New York and Midwestern kids. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you one example. When I was back in Milwaukee still, they had an anti-war march on the campus at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. And we were marching through these you know, all these glass buildings, the library and all this stuff. And we were chanting anti-war slogans. And at a certain point, one of the leaders of the group starts blowing the whistle like four short, boop, 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 boop. All of a sudden, these people, protesters, took out rocks from underneath <laughs> their clothing and they threw the rocks and started breaking all these huge glass windows. And I'm going, holy shit, they don't fuck around here <laughs> in the Midwest. And so um, a year later, when I was up in uh, Madison as the music editor of the Daily Cardinal, I went to a thing in, in Milwaukee they have every year called Summerfest. And um, they, uh, they had, this, the headliner was Sly and the Family Stone. And I love Sly, so I was so excited. Well, Sly was in the throes of his crack cocaine addiction. Mm -hmm. And uh, he shows up like an hour and a half late. He does two songs and then he leaves. Now, you know, in New York, people would have booed or whatever. They burnt down the whole stage. <laughs> to it. It, it was like insane what was going on. So I called up Rolling Stone. And I said, uh, hi, this is Larry Sloman. I'm the music editor of the Daily Cardinal. And I just want to know there was a, a horrific incident at the Summerfest. Uh, would you want me to cover it? And they said, sure, do it on spec, which meant, hmm. yeah, I write it. We're not going to pay you if, if, unless we like it, if you don't, too bad. But I thought, oh, I got my first assignment from Rolling Stone. And, and I remember going to... Uh, there was I forgot, I forgot what the there was a specific issue about this thing I forgot what it was but I remember interviewing the publicist for Summerfest and I had my big Sony tape recorder plugged into the wall and she's not giving me the real deal right mm -hmm. so I say all right thanks and I unplug the tape recorder from the wall. But I, for, I forgot, it wasn't contrived. I forgot to turn off the tape recorder. She saw me unplug it. She says, okay, now I'll tell you everything. <laughs> <laughs> so by that chance, you know, uh, um, I, I did the article. They loved it. And that was the beginning of my Rolling Stone career. Did you go out to San Francisco uh, or did you file everything from uh, the Midwest? No, I, I, I did two articles in the Midwest and then um, I, I had quit graduate school. I got my master's, which I'm very proud of to this day. 
I have a master's in deviance and criminology. Wow. And, and, and that's inform, <laughs> informed my work ever since. <laughs> but uh, so I went back to New York because I didn't really know what I was going to do. And, and uh, yeah, go on. And they had, a, they had New York offices and that's where they started sending oh. me out. I did, I did a preview of uh, Lou Reed's Berlin. I thought it was one of the greatest albums I'd ever heard. You know, and I was way ahead of my time. You were, the yeah. critics, the critics panned it. Yeah. Um, and I had a funny little uh, incident with Lou at that time because uh, uh, so in the article I said, uh, look, Berlin will be the Sergeant Pepper of the 70s. And I explained that, you know, this, the, the, the zeitgeist of the 60s was uh, Sergeant Pepper and Peace Love and Acid. The 70s, it was a bisexual couple taking amphetamine, beating the shit out of each other, losing their kids. So, you know, that he captured the zeitgeist of the times. And um, so RCA loved the article. And they made these big billboards that went all over the city and in every subway stop. And it, you know, had a big picture of a, a, a man and a woman embracing. It said Berlin, Lou Reed, and there were two stars. And in one corner, the star said, Berlin will be the Sergeant Pepper of the 70s, Sloman Rolling Stone. <laughs> and when, right. when the album tanked, Lou blame me because <laughs> he hated Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> anyway, it took years for him to talk to me. Yeah. So where does Bob come into all this? When did you first meet him? And so, so the first time I met Bob, I once walked past him years earlier, walking down Fifth Avenue, and uh, uh, in the village, and I said that was Bob Dylan. I was excited, but I didn't say anything to him. Uh, years later. Um, I'm, I'm walking up Fifth Avenue. And uh, this is when I was, uh, uh, you know, kind of an established freelancer from Rolling Stone and I would bring in our ideas and they would, or they would assign me ideas. And um, I was up at uh, Columbia Records and, you know, I always asked the publicist, what's coming, what's, what's the newest? And they didn't tell me, but I saw on the wall there was some sheet from a recording studio and it said Dylan blood on the tracks so I said wow Dylan's recorded and um, so I'm walking up Fifth Avenue on the way to the Rolling Stone offices and uh, there's a, a, a beauty salon a high-end beauty salon for women called Elizabeth Arden hmm. and I look to my left and there's a guy sitting in the car and it's Dylan it probably obviously was waiting for Sarah, you know, in, in Elizabeth Odd. And I walk over to him and I said, hey, Bob, uh, this is Larry Sloman from Rolling Stone. Um, uh, I, I understand you're doing a new album. I'd love to do a preview for Rolling Stone. And he goes, how do you know about an album? <laughs> he got all paranoid. And I knew that I had to break the ice. So I said, um, oh, by the way, Phil Oaks is my roommate. And it was true because I had inherited the apartment in Soho where Phil Oaks and Jerry Rubin, who was one of the leaders of the anti-war movement, yeah, yeah. the Yippies, and Jerry had moved then to uh, uh, California to get into multivitamins and meditation and est and all that. So uh, when he left, Phil had nowhere to go. 
So me and my roommate said, Phil, just crash on the couch as long as you want. So Phil was staying with us. So I mentioned that to Bob and Bob melted. And he goes, oh man, how's Phil doing? You know, so uh, I had credibility immediately in his eyes. So he said, sure. So I did a, a, a big one page or one and a half page articles, a preview of Blood on the Tracks. And, um, and then the next time, I guess, was uh, when Bob was in town to do Desire. And there were sightings of him every night at the, uh, the uh, other end on uh, Bleecker Street. Mm-hmm. And one night, um, I, was, I was friendly for years with uh, Roger McGuinn and people like that from, you know, just doing rock journalism. And McGuinn happened to be in town and uh, we met up at Gertie's Folk City, and then we went to eat Chinese food. And then I said to McGuinn, hey, you know, Bob is working with, uh, from what I understand, he's working with Jacques Levy, who you, who you wrote songs with. And they hang out every night. Let's go to the other end and see, you know, see if they're there. And we went there. We went to the back room. And lo and behold, there's a group of people, Jacques and Bob. And Bob yells out, Roger. And, you know, and this is, we're going to go and do this incredible tour. We're going to just go on buses and hit these towns, uh, guerrilla style. And he asked Roger to be on what would be the Rolling Thunder tour. And uh, then uh, I introduced myself to him. He goes, oh, you're Larry. Yeah, I like that piece. You should come on the tour. I'd rather have you than anybody else documented. And that's how uh, we got on the Rolling Thunder tour, the two of us. But you, uh, he was there up there on the stage, and you, you had trouble even getting backstage sometimes, didn't you, at the, well, at the beginning? See, well, no, at the beginning, I had no trouble because I was hang- I mean, you know, that night we were driving around the village. Dylan was uh, in this uh, red Cadillac convertible. Louis Kemp was with him. I was in the back seat with McGuinn. I mean, you know, so I had tremendous access until we hit the road. Right. When we hit the road, then all of a sudden, Barry Emhoff is the promoter. We have to keep the press away. And I'm saying, but what if it, I know all these people. Bob invited me. What are you giving me a hard time? And then it was a, a, a matter of just fighting them for access and then fighting uh, uh, Rolling Stone because they were asking all these stupid questions like, well, it started out as small little venues and now they're playing much bigger venues. Why has the ticket prices gone up? And I'm screaming, what is this, Forbes magazine? Nobody gives a shit about the ticket prices. This is an incredible cultural event. And uh, so I left, and then I, I eventually stayed on the tour because of my contributions to uh, the movie, Ronaldo and Clara. And and just just going back a bit, of course, your nickname, Razzo, uh, came yes. because were you sort of like, you weren't living in your car, but you were sort of living kind of rough because you couldn't, <laughs> you know, you, no, you weren't staying at the no, good hotels. Is that not, no? Right. Tell I, me. Exactly. Tell me. Right. So they would be staying at these beautiful hotels and I would be staying at the CD motel down the road that Rolling Stone was paying for at the time. And I had a uh, red Granada. Uh, that I was driving around a rental car. So it was, I think, up in uh, Vermont, and it was a beautiful Indian summer day. And I drove to um, interview some of the people. And uh, uh, a lot of people were outside playing volleyball. It was so nice. And I drive up, and Joan Baez comes up, and she leans into the car, and she takes her hand, and she starts fingering my 
dirty hair because I hadn't showered that morning or something. And she goes, oh, look, it's Ratso. And I say, oh, you call me Ratso because I remind you of Dustin Hoffman, you know, of course, who played Ratso in the mm. great movie, Midnight Cowboy. And she goes, no, you remind me of Ratso Rizzo. And when she said that, I realized that first, you know, that was a great device to, you know, to stand out. I mean, and Ratso, you know, is this kind of iconic character. And, you know, to this day, when uh, I meet somebody and say, what's your name? And I go, Ratso. They go, Ratso? And they remember. And, uh, and when I wrote the book, the book changes from first person to third person when she calls me Ratso. And then Ratso becomes a character in this cavalcade. Mm. And, uh, you know, Ratso is a, is, a very, is a great alter ego for me because Ratso is somebody that does things that Larry Sloman certainly wouldn't do. No, but Ratso was the, for, for, for younger people, Ratso in the, in the film was the sort of ultimate street hustler, wasn't he? I mean, his, his hair was completely so greasy that it was beyond grease. And, uh, and he would just do anything to survive, which I guess right. is what you were doing at the time. Well, that's true. That's true. And the reason I survived was uh, because of the film crew. See, I, you know, during the day, I'd go to the venues and I'd see all these fans hanging out or, you know, and, and uh, I, then I would interview them. I knew right away this had to be a book. And um, early on in the tour, I had written a letter uh, that uh, one of uh, my friends who was, you know, on the tour, she gave to Bob. And there's actually a Ken Regan picture of Bob backstage reading my letter in Waterbury, Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And it was an impassioned letter saying, you let me write, it's in my book. I, I reproduced the letter on the road with Bob Dylan. And, um, you know, I basically said, let me sing my song, blah, blah, blah. And that night, Bob gets on stage and he goes, he knew, and he, he knew my, that one of my favorite songs was Sarah that he was singing. Mm -hmm. And he's about to do Sarah and he goes, we're going to send this out to our favorite reporter, Larry. He tells it like it is. <laughs> so I knew then, you know, Bob was, at least was still my ally if, if Louis Kemp and Barry Imhoff weren't. And, um, and, and, and so when I had the falling out with Rolling Stone, I, um, the, uh, you know, the, uh, the film crew had recognized like, like there was a, in Springfield, I think it was, there were these two kids outside the venue singing a song about the Rolling Thunder coming to Springfield. And it was like Mutt and Jeff. It was like Simon and Garfunkel. It was a little guy and a tall guy. And, and so I said, hey, guys, you're going into the show, right? Yeah. Hang around. When everybody leaves the show, come downstairs onto the floor and I'll have the camera crew film you. And... This is like the camera crew, one of the crews was Dave Myers and Larry Johnson, who were old, you know, guys had been, Dave Myers was in his 60s then. He had been filming for years and years and years. What a great documentary filmmaker. And he starts take, he starts filming these guys and they're singing this impassioned song about the Rolling Thunder coming to, you know, they're coming for you. And as he starts panning back to get, the whole entirety of this empty arena. But the kid who was singing, the little one playing the guitar, 
as he's panning back, he thinks he's not, you know, he, he runs the camera and he starts singing the song, the end of the song to the camera right in his face. And when that's over, Myers turns to me and goes, Ratso, that was one of the greatest pieces of footage I've ever shot. And he told that to Dylan. And they would have meetings every night after the show, meetings about, you know, what they were going to film and everything. Mm -hmm. So Bob was aware that I was, you know, helping out, bringing people in. So they, that's where they, uh, they let uh, me stay on. And in fact, I don't know if, of course, you guys have seen Ronaldo and Clara, right? Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah. So the opening scene is where I'm at that crisis point. I'm in the lobby talking to McGuinn. I'm saying they're fucking me over. I can't get access to you. I've known you for 10 years, blah, blah, blah. And Dylan and Joni Mitchell walk in. And Bob comes over and goes, what's the matter, Ratso? I said, well, I, you know, I, I, this is ridiculous. I, I, have, I have nowhere to stay. I want to stay on this tour. I want to write. And they go, Bob goes, Barry, get him a room. What else you need? And I said, well, Rolling Stone's not paying me anymore, so I need uh, per diem. And Bob says, give him per diem. What else you need? And I'm basically six inches from his face, and I say, I need access. <laughs> and years later, uh, Howard Ork told me that, who, you know, who did the movie with uh, Bob. Yeah. Howard Ork told me years later that when they, uh, they had, I had sent my book to Bob, no, 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 but, he, but Howard Oak told me that if they didn't call it Ronaldo and Clara, they were going to call the movie Access. <laughs> <laughs> or X-Lax, right? Because didn't, didn't he think that's he said right. X-Lax yeah, that's right. Point? That's what Bob said. And Bob says, I said, I need Access. And Bob says, you need X-Lax? <laughs> <laughs> and how do you feel about the music now, Radso? When you hear that those 75 recordings, whether you've... The greatest music yet. I, to me, there's three periods... That were really outstanding to me. Of course, you know, the stuff I saw in 66 and probably, you know, a lot of that is because it was so fresh and new to me. And, you know, I never heard music like that. Um, I also very much enjoyed uh, the Christian period because mm -hmm. he was so passionate and he had such a great band. And I went, to, he invited me out to uh, the Midwest to see some of those shows and uh, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> but, to me, there was nothing like 75. I mean, every night, the way he would just... And don't forget, he was singing these songs that he co-wrote with Jacques Levy. Yeah. And Jacques was a great theater person. So these songs were, were epic stories. And Bob was able to actually act them out. Like, you know, uh, you know, ISIS was a great example of that. And uh, no, some of the greatest music I've ever heard. And wait till you see the, the Scorsese documentary. Because, uh, um, you know, Ronaldo and Clara, there's not that much of extended, you know, concert footage. Right. But in Marty's film, oh man, it's some of the greatest music footage I've ever seen in, in a documentary. Can't wait. We absolutely can't wait. And you yeah. said in, in the book, um, Robbie Robertson says that, that Dylan always said he was going to do a tour like the Rolling Thunder tour. He said he was always talking about doing it. Um, so you think, I, mean, I guess there's something about that period which is, is, is pure Dylan, it's theatre, it's, that, that's what he always meant to do. Is that right? Well, yes. You know, um, I think that, don't forget this is coming off Tour 74, yeah. which was the Bill Graham 
you know, hockey rink extravaganza. Mm. And, you know, as much as they tried to make it feel intimate by putting like uh, couches and lamps on the stage, and <laughs> making it look like a living room, you know, it, it wasn't at all. And um, and the other thing I think is that, um, you know, uh, I think Bob enjoyed having the, the pressure taken off him. So it wasn't mm. Bob Dylan, it was Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Rambling Jack and Roger McGuinn and Mick Ronson. So there was a whole, you know, uh, cavalcade and a troop that was mm. barnstorming the North uh, East. Mm. The passion play, uh, as Joni Mitchell calls it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, uh, you know, Dylan is a big fan of uh, Children of Paradise, that mm. movie. Yeah. I think that very much influenced uh, Ronaldo and Clara. But uh, so, you know, you get the white face and, uh, you know, he's wearing the hat. Um, and, and but, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, even though it's all, you know, everybody's loving each other, there was a tremendous amount of competition, especially among the women. And, um, but every night when Bob went on the second uh, act, everybody came out from the backstage, every performer came out to watch him because he was just, just killed it. He was so on top of his game. But speaking about competition, I was always, uh, there's quite a bit about Joni Mitchell in, in your book, and uh, yeah. in, including her singing uh, Coyote to you, where she's just in the middle of right. writing it, which is fantastic. Right. But she always struck me as uh, not being quite integrated into the thing. Would you, would you say that she was competitive with Bob as, as well? I think she wanted to, we first met because we had this big conversation in, in the book and I was talking about my favorite male songwriters and she said, well, why do you make that distinction? I'm just as good as those guys. <laughs> and, and, uh, and she's right. You know, I was just talking about it from the point of view as, you know, the, the male uh, anima, animus, you know, I mean, uh, you know, that men have, a, you know, there's a male gaze, there's, men have, a, you know, a different perspective. Uh, I certainly wasn't trying to demean her songwriting, although I think she th thought I was lumping her in with Joan Baez and, <laughs> and Ronnie Blakely <laughs> in terms of songwriting, and I wasn't. And we got actually very close, you know, during that tour, she was uh, she was just an amazing person, brilliant person. Uh, we hung out. Uh, she moved to New York afterwards. She got a loft. I actually brought Abby Hoffman when he was underground to her Christmas party one year in Soho, and that was the same uh, night that um, Bobby De Niro was looking for lofts, and somebody said, "Go check out Joni Mitchell's loft. They're having a party," and uh, man. Once Abby Hoffman saw that De Niro was there, he was all over him trying to convince De Niro to play Abby in the movie based on Abby's life. He was unrelenting. But, so he ignored but, Joni you know, Mitchell entirely. And just oh, yeah, yeah. I, I brought, uh, I brought uh, a lot of the... I was doing a book on ice hockey and a lot of the Rangers were from Canada, and they loved Joni, so I brought the Rangers, to, and she loved hanging out with the Rangers. No, she's just a ter terrific, terrific person. And I know that you weren't on the second Rolling Thunder tour, but how do you no. feel about that music? How do you characterize the differences between, I mean, we think of them as these huge monolithic experiences, but they were very little tours, and yet they're incredibly different, those two, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's an article in... Mojo that my friend Michael Simmons wrote 
that mm-hmm. just just hit the stands, and it's looking at at the Rolling Thunder review, and uh, and he interviewed Joan Baez, and she talked about the differences. Obviously, I was uh, uh, I was writing my book mm. while while they were on the second tour, right. um, but um, she said that uh, you know the. Uh, that the whole feel was different. And Mansfield says the same thing. The 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 music was much harder edged. Yeah. Uh the camaraderie wasn't there. You know, Bob was also going through a, a horrible time in his life. He was divorcing his wife. I mean you could just listen to uh, Idiot Wind, the version yeah. on hard on that live album. Yeah. yeah. You know. Um and and you know, compare the early versions of Idiot Wind that just came out, you know, on that box set mm-hmm. to the version that's, you know, the 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 compassion, oh yeah, that in the yeah. twist in the end of that song where you know where idiots, babe, it seems to be gone. Yeah, I was talking to Luke earlier today about the fact that uh, there's quite a bit about Sarah Dylan in in uh, in your book, and uh, in fact, there's That's more right. about her in your book than in any book or article. I've ever read by far, and well, uh, I, I, I've never read anything. Well, she's never been. She's never talked to the press. No, no, but, exactly. You know, does she have a voice but, like chimes? She did. <laughs> she did. She sounds lovely. She, I mean, I have to say, you sort of fall was, in love with her when you read about the Sarah Dillon in your book. Oh, of course. You know, she was wonderful, and she had. You know, she. You know, both of them have incredibly wry, dry sense of humor. Um, you know, the great scene where they were shooting a scene for Ronaldo and Clara, and it was uh, it was between takes, and it was, I remember it was rain, it was snowing, we were up, I don't know, somewhere in Maine, I think, and, uh, and that's when I talked to him about Sad Eyed Lady, and I said, you know, Bob, I always wondered, you know, in the chorus you say, my warehouse eyes, my Arabian drums, do you mean eyes is a verb or is there a comma there <laughs> two different images? And Sarah goes, yeah, I've always wanted that too. And Bob, <laughs> and Bob says, leave me alone, Russ. I love that little bit that you said because uh, you, you do have an outrageous uh, sense of humor and chutzpah when there's a little bit where you ask her to give you some of her shampoo, which is called head shampoo. Right. And then you talk about right. Sarah possibly giving you some head. <laughs> and I think you, you mention that to her in the book, don't you? And she thinks that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. No, I mean, look, uh, uh, I, 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 there's no way of describing. And, and, you know, I'm friendly with Louis Camp to this day. You know, we, we, we've, we've become friends over the years, right after the tour ended, actually. And Louis said, Ratso, you are so out of control on that tour. And I was. I mean, I was completely... Hyper. I was manic. In fact, when the tour was over, I had a real bad depressive episode, and uh, and uh, you know it, it took me months to get over it because uh, you know you can't imagine what it was like to be you know you know with these incredible people that you respect and admire. I mean that's how I started writing songs. You know I started writing this song "Combat Zone" um, lyrics. You know and. Um, because I, you know, the the the, um, the film crew had sent me ahead of time to scout out Boston because they wanted like strippers for some party scene. So I went to all the strip clubs in Boston, and um, 
you know, I spent a day Im- embedded in what was called the combat zone, which is the area that's like the seedy Times Square version of Boston. And, uh, you know, even, uh, you know, all day I went to every club, met every owner, met all the strippers, said, do you want to be in a Bob Dylan movie? And then at night I hung out at this Howard Johnson's where uh, they, it was so bad that four o'clock they had to close, put barricade the bathrooms so, you know, there can't be t- transsexual sex going on. You know, all the sex workers would go there. So um, so I, I thought it was a fascinating little scene, and I was a sociologist. So I wrote this song called The Combat Zone, talking each each uh, verse was about another woman who was there. And um, and I remember uh, a little bit later on the on the train ride from Toronto to Montreal, I gave it to Bob and he looked at the lyrics and he goes, hey man, these are good. And that's all I needed to hear. And, you know, uh, we wound up, uh, Roger McGuinn round up, wound up uh, singing it, playing guitar, backing me on a, a, a WBAI show, Bob Fass's show on BAI. And and then when the tour was over, um, I uh, started working with Rick Derringer, writing lyrics mm-hmm. for him. And then, uh, and then shortly after that, Kinky introduced me to John Cale. So, I mean, my whole writing uh, music, writing lyrics, and then ultimately doing my own album uh, was all because of uh, being inspired on that tour. And you also worked with, uh, you, didn't you co-direct the uh, Joker Man video? Yes. At one point. How did that happen? Well, um, the album's about to come out, and we get a, I get a call from uh, Bill Graham, who was managing Bob at the time. And uh, Graham says, uh, Ratso, uh, you know, we, uh, he, he knew, Bob knew uh, George Lois, the famous uh, Madison Avenue ad guy from the Hurricane Carter thing, because George had formed the, the you know, celebrity campaign to get him out of jail. Mm-hmm. So uh, they loved George, they respected him. So Graham said, um, Ratso, why don't you talk to uh, uh, George Lois, see if he could do a, a, a video for the, uh, from the album. So uh, we got an advanced copy of the album. Uh, I sat down with George, listened to it. We both agreed Joker Man had to be the song. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we started throwing ideas around. And, and George, uh, one of his ideas was, all right, Dylan's a great lyricist. We got to put the words in your face. So that, that's how the words got on the screen. And then George uh, wanted to use all these images, uh, great images from the world of art and to help illustrate the, the song. And then at each chorus, we would shoot Bob, you know, um, in a plain white sports jacket and a white T-shirt, and he would sing the chorus of Joker Man. And uh, and that's how we did it. And he wouldn't open his eyes, right? Or it, it, he, well, he was squinting all the way through it. Or it well, was very yeah. odd. I mean that. Well, <laughs> um, he's 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 been accused of being odd before, but uh, <laughs> there's uh, yeah. So so George, after each take, George would say, "Rats, go talk to him. Get him to open his eyes." And each take, I'd go back and said, "Bob, Bob, look." They want you to open your eyes. And he'd just nod and he'd go back, we'd do another take, and he wouldn't open his eyes. And uh, finally, I, I, I talking to him five times, 
I said, look, you, they really want you to open your eyes and look at the camera. And Bob goes, I'm trying. <laughs> and then that final shot is when he looks open, finally squints and he opens his eyes and he stares directly at the camera with those incredibly charismatic baby blue eyes. And that, that to me was the highlight of the whole video. Yeah. And just to bring it up to date, Ratso, when were you last in touch with Dylan? Um, the last was a couple of years ago in, uh, um, in uh, at backstage at uh, Caesar's Palace when he was playing Caesar's Palace. And I was in Vegas working with uh, Mike Tyson on the second book. And, um, and that's when um, uh, I got a call and, from uh, his office and said, Bob wants you to come to the show. And uh, I went to the show and then they said, uh, you know, uh, you want to say hi before or after? I said, ah, no, I'll say hi afterwards. And uh, and <laughs> that's when, um, so they they told me when the encore was and then they said, come to the backstage at the, I was sitting by the sound, uh, where the sound was being mixed. And they, they say, you know, come to the backstage during the encore. I come backstage and his road manager places me backstage and he says, okay, I'm going to bring Bob to you because Bob usually goes right, he doesn't care who's there, he'll go right out into the bus and he's gone while people are still, you know, <laughs> cheering. Right, that makes sense, yeah. And, and, and so I see, he finishes their cheering, I see the uh, flashlight and they're leading somebody and they bring Bob to me and I'm wearing one of my soul train fashion, ridiculous ratso, crazy wild ass suits. And he's pretty uh, nearsighted. And so he gets within 10 feet of me and he, he looks and he goes, oh man, ratso, you should dress me. <laughs> and, and, and then we had a little talk. I told him how much I loved, uh, um, you know, his last album. Um, and, uh, uh, and, 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 and then finally I say, Hey, you know, Bob, I'm making my own album. And he goes, what? He says, yeah, I'm making an album. I, I do a duet with Nick Cave. He goes, you do a duet with Nick Cave. I said, yeah. And I have, you know, Yasmin Hamdan, this great Arabic singer on it, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and I could see him just waiting <laughs> calculating what I'm going to say next. And he starts tensing up and I say, and I want you, <laughs> and he's completely tense. And I say, I want you to write the, the liner notes. And he takes it, he just relaxes and he goes, well, I don't know if I write good liner notes. <laughs> I said, world, world gone wrong. He goes, notes. world gone wrong. He goes, well, go yeah, they yeah, were okay. fantastic line they, of notes. They were okay. <laughs> they were okay. So that was it. I never, uh, I never actually pursued that request. In fact, I got Pendulet, who wrote the line of notes for uh, some of Bob's albums, yeah, to yeah. Uh, to write the line of notes. He wrote some beautiful line of notes for my album, which is called Stubborn, Stubborn Heart. Heart. Yes, yeah. we and love it's, it. It's actually getting. Uh, I, I mean, mean, I'm. Uh, it's uh, Vin and I are just you know, over the moon with the reaction that that album's getting from people. Vin, I should say, uh, hi, I know you haven't had a chance, but again, you must be kind of <laughs> used to this. 
Uh, do you want to say anything about uh, the album or indeed, uh, you know, I'm really interested in, in your version because you produced it of, of Sad-Eyed uh, Lady of the Lowlands, which I think is, is terrific. I love what you've done with it. Yeah. Uh, well, Ratso uh, had the idea of uh, doing a cover of Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. And um, right away I was like, oh, man. He went and picked one of the most challenging and <laughs> yeah. longest Bob Dylan yeah. songs. Um, but, uh, you know, by that point, we had already recorded Nick Cave for the album. And, you know, as far back as I can remember while working on this record, Nick's music was just sort of floating in my mind as a reference point for what we were doing. And, um, of course, there's that great uh, version of um, Death Is Not The End. Yeah. That Nick Cave does, and um, it's Kylie Minogue. Yeah, and I, I don't. Is she yeah, on that? I think so. There's a bunch of voices, yeah. but yeah, I guess she's on that. Anyway, so I said to Ratso, "Why don't we do something like that for the cover?" And uh, he said, "Okay." He thought about it, and then a couple of days later, he came back to me. He goes, "Let's get all female singers to do the chorus. I'll do every verse, and we'll do every chorus is a different female guest." And as soon as he said that, I said, "That's the idea." Um, and we started putting it together. Um, you know, we started with a bunch of, uh, the basic tracks over here in my studio. And then we sent the stems over to Warren Ellis, who provided some of the great, uh, flute and, uh, Warren, Warren is a big Dylan fan. And then, uh, we, we established the roster of, uh, of lady singers, uh, based on, uh, our friend group. We got, uh, my wife, Magalie, who sings the first chorus, and then uh, our friend Ivana, who used to perform as Eddie Front back then, uh, does the second one. And then Ratso brought in Yasmin Hamdan, uh, the great um, Arabic uh, electronic musician. And then we got um, Sharon Robinson, who is uh, Leonard's co-writer and producer. Of course. Yeah. Oh, she's so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's funny because uh, she was doing a book of Leonard Cohn um, photographs she took on the last couple of Leonard tours. Mm. And Leonard uh, uh, said to her, why don't you ask Ratso if he would write, you know, an introduction to it. So she got in touch with me. And I said, Sharon, I'll write an introduction for free. All you have to do is sing on my album. <laughs> and, she, and hey, she's fine. It was we, we, need to, uh, we need to wrap up pretty soon, Ratso. But is, is there anything oh. finally that you could tell us that, that you had to leave out of the book? Anything that you can now make public that maybe you couldn't back then? No, I mean, uh, um, I actually have a version of the book that's a hundred pages more. And it wasn't uh, that we had to take anything out of it uh, that, you know, was uh, too sensitive or anything like that. It was just that there was just more of this incredible tour. So, uh, you know, someday maybe I'll, I'll put out the uh, auteur's cut of On the Road with Bob Dylan. Yeah, the uh, Redux version, I think they call it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think there'll be a lot of uh, interest, especially after the Scorsese film. Yeah, comes out. Is there anything you can tell us about that before before we say goodbye? Well, you're gonna love it. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's, it's, uh, it's kind of like Ronaldo and Clara without Ronaldo and Clara. <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's every fan's dream. <laughs> but it, but it, it, it but it's uh, uh, it's, it's 
I'm in awe. It's an amazing, yeah. amazing documentary. And it's got, uh, you know, look, he's, he's a master. Yeah. I think it's better than the, the first Scorsese Dylan documentary. Wow, that's saying a lot because that was definitely awesome. Yeah, yeah. that's fantastic. It was. Vin and Ratso, thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Hey, it's a lot of fun. Thanks for having us. Is It Rolling Bob Talking Dylan is recorded in the handy dandy suite at Lip Sync Studios. Engineered by Mark Langley Smith and produced by Robin Guys. We're on Twitter at Is It Rolling Pod. Music is by Sam Hare. Was it me that shot him down in the cantina? Was it my hand that held the gun? Come, let us fly, my Magdalena. The dogs are barking, and what's done is done. <laughs>